Okay, everyone, that's it. Shh. Thank you. I'm glad to see you're also obedient. Um, I want to welcome you all to the freshman assembly for the class of 2006. For those of you who uh, I haven't met yet, my name is Claire Fowler, and I'm Associate Dean of the College with special responsibilities for the academic lives of freshmen and sophomores. The tradition of holding a freshman assembly during orientation week was initiated over 10 years ago as a way of bringing the intellectual life of the university to the forefront of students' introduction to Princeton. It is the custom of this assembly to have a distinguished member of the senior faculty address the freshman class on a topic related to her scholarly field, while raising issues of broad cultural, historical, political, or scientific significance. And we hope that we will give you a great deal to think about in this your first shared intellectual experience at Princeton. It gives me great personal pleasure tonight to introduce a friend and a colleague as this year's speaker, Deborah Epstein Nord, Professor of English and Director of Princeton's program in the study of women and gender. Professor Nord earned her bachelor's degree at Barnard College and her master's degree at the University of Leicester in England before returning to New York to complete her PhD in English at Columbia. I regret to say we're both Columbia alums. Uh, she has served on the faculty of the University of Connecticut at Columbia and at Harvard before coming to her senses and coming to Princeton in 1989. <laughs> Professor Nord is not only a world-class scholar, but one of Princeton's most well-loved teachers. In addition to inspiring students with her lectures on Victorian novel, Professor Nord has taught courses for the program in Jewish Studies, where she serves on the advisory board, and for the program in the study of women and gender, which she now directs. She has a very lengthy bibliography, which I'm sure would not mean a lot to any of you, but in addition to numerous articles on 19th century literature and history, autobiography, and women's writings, Professor Nord is also the author of The Apprenticeship of Beatrice Webb, as well as Walking the Victorian Streets, Women, Representation, and the City. Both are published by Cornell University Press. Her critical edition of John Ruskin's Sesame and Lilies is about to be published, and she is currently working on her next book, which will explore the figure of the gypsy in 19th century British literature and culture. I hope you'll all have the opportunity while you're here to take a course with Professor Nord. In the meantime, it gives me great pleasure to turn tonight's program over to her, because she will speak to you tonight on Rosie the Riveter to Sylvia Plath, Sexual Politics in Mid-20th Century America. Thank you. Thank you, Claire Fowler, now Dean Fowler. I prepared some handouts, um, which should be in color, but aren't unfortunately, in black and white. And there's not enough for everybody, so if you could be near somebody who has one, um, that would be great. There are still a few on the stage, I noticed, so pass them back if you don't need them. Um, as you can tell from what Dean Fowler said about what I do at Princeton, I'm one of those Princeton faculty members, and there are many of us who wear more than one academic hat. 
I teach 19th century British literature in the English department and gender studies and feminist criticism in the program in the study of women and gender. What these two interests of mine have in common is a fascination with the relationship between literature and history. Literature as it is shaped by historical forces and phenomena, as it expresses a historical moment, and literature as it translates and transforms historical episodes and sensibilities through the prism of language and the imagination. And that connection between history and literature, however elusive and mysterious it may be, is what this lecture revolves around. I'll be talking about the 1950s and 60s, about the generation roughly of your grandparents and my, grand and my parents, as I figure it, dipping back to the 1940s and World War II and looking forward to the 1970s and the women's movement, sometimes known as the women's liberation movement, sometimes known as the second wave of feminism. And at the sexual politics of American culture during this time, in an effort to suggest where late 20th century feminism came from, what its roots were, what gave rise to it, and finally, I want to think about the poetry of Sylvia Plath as it emerged from very similar sources. Plath's poetry draws on the repressive ideals of womanhood that Betty Friedan describes in The Feminine Mystique and bitterly parodies them, unleashing a kind of anger familiar to late 20th century feminism. I also want to suggest, when I get to my discussion of Plath's poem, Lady Lazarus, at the very end of my talk, that through the imagery of rebirth and resurrection, Plath imagines a virtual transcendence and triumph over despair, over self-loathing and rage. Now, whether any of these reflections on the middle decades of the last century um, suggest a connection to your lives or to the world that you live in is something I'm going to leave to you to think about and perhaps to discuss after I'm finished. I Xeroxed some images of three women, two real women, um, and one uh, imagined woman. And if you just look at your handout briefly, I want to say something about them, just as a way of kind of getting you into thinking about uh, the different images of women from the period I'm discussing. At the very top of your page, you will see Rosie the Riveter. Um, you will see then two images of Marilyn Monroe, and then two pictures of Plath herself, uh, Sylvia Plath at the bottom of the page. The picture on the right bottom is Sylvia Plath's Smith College graduation photo. The photo on the left is of the poet and young mother of two children uh, a few years later. I want to just comment on the first two, that is Rosie the Riveter and Marilyn Monroe, and on what they tell us about the physical image of ideal womanhood in the period of World War II, the 1940s, and in the 1950s and early 60s. Um, I think it's fair to say that the decade of the 1950s really lasted until about 1963. Um, and I think that's the way most decades tend to work, but certainly the 50s did. Rosie the Riveter was painted by Norman Rockwell for one of his Saturday Evening Post covers uh, for 19, the 19, uh, 1943 cover, uh, just to remind you that the United States was uh, already entered into World War II. And Rosie the Riveter became a kind of symbol of the home front participation in the war. You can see from this picture, although it's not in color, uh, which tends not to give you as much detail uh, as, as it might, 
Um, you see from this picture that Rosie the River is a monumental woman, muscular, dressed in men's work clothes, with a rather weapon-like, um, one might want to say phallic-looking riveting machine draped across her lap. Her head um, is adorned with red curls. You can't see the red because you don't have it in color. And she has very bright red lipstick on as well. But her head is dwarfed by her massive body. This super competent and physically formidable woman is allied with patriotism and with the fight against Nazism. She sits in front of uh, an American flag, and her foot is on a book. I'm sure you can't see what the book is, but it is a copy of Mein Kampf, um, which was written by Hitler. So she is stomping on uh, the, the Nazi, on the Nazi foe, and she is very much a patriotic symbol. But she's also associated in Rockwell's image with a kind of divinity. There's actually a halo over her head. And there's no mistaking, therefore, given her associations with patriotism and with faith, that the virtue and desi- that there is virtue and desirability in this manly woman, a woman who exhibits these characteristics outside of wartime, would perhaps not have been seen as virtuous, not have been seen um, as desirable. Here, those things are turned into um, great virtues. But I also want you to notice about her that she's very insouciant. She doesn't seem to care that we're looking at her. Um, She chomps on a ham sandwich nonchalantly. She doesn't care whether we're her audience. She doesn't need our approval or our affection. She doesn't return our regard doesn't need to please us, seduce us, or impress us. By contrast, we have our next woman, Marilyn Monroe, the popular ideal that supplanted uh, Rosie the Riveter uh, and the heroines of 1940s films, uh, the fast-talking dames of my colleague Marie de Batista's work. She's there for us to look at her, isn't she? To please us, to seduce us, She's seductive, and yet she's also vulnerable. She's not a tough cookie like Rosie the Riveter. Her femininity is exaggerated and underscored. And in one case, in the image on the left side of your paper, she's associated with advertising, with selling a product, which I think in this case is makeup. Her body is soft, not muscular, fleshy, uncovered not to show her biceps, but to show her shoulders and part of her breasts. Her hair is fashioned in curves, like her body, not gathered back under a visor and work goggles. Her hair is not red, like Rosie the Riveter's, but also, and you might keep this in mind, like the hair of the speaker of Lady Lazarus, but platinum blonde. Like the story of Marilyn Monroe, who was catapulted to stardom in the first years of the decade of the 50s and was dead, by 1962. This evening's story is also a story of the 1950s. The 50s were a decade, as I'm sure you all know, of social and political conservatism. The Eisenhower years, we call them, the years of the Cold War, and certainly the era of McCarthyism. Betty Friedan's Feminine Mystique was published a year after Marilyn Monroe died in 1963. It describes the post-war 1950s ennui of the suburban middle-class housewife. She called it the problem that has no name. And she's taking off 
uh, by the way, on a phrase that Oscar Wilde actually used um, at the end of the 19th century, uh, the love that dare not speak its name, in, by which Wilde was referring to homosexuality. Um, Friedan uh, sort of plays with that phrase to refer to this, this sort of despondency of the middle-class housewife, the problem that has no name, the social and psychological origins in fact, of the women's movement of the 60s and 70s. Indeed, Friedan identifies 1960 as, quote, the year American women's discontent boiled over. Sylvia Plath, born six years after Monroe, went to Smith College in the early 50s. You can now read her diaries from her years at Smith, and they're quite interesting, I think, probably for people who, like you, are in college. Um, she published her first book of poems in 1960, her novel, The Bell Jar, which some of you may know, in 1963, and was dead, sadly also a suicide, in the winter of 1963, the year in which The Feminine Mystique was published. Although an extraordinary poet and a haunting and tragic figure, Plath was in some ways a representative life. One of her biographers says this about her. The history of her life, as it has now been told in the five biographies and in innumerable essays and critical studies, is a signature story of the fearful, double-faced 50s. Plath embodies in a vivid, almost emblematic way the schizoid character of the period. She is the divided self par excellence the taut surrealism of the late poems and the slack girls' book realism of her life. As rendered by Plath's biographers and by her own autobiographical writings, are grotesquely incongruous. The photographs of Plath as a vacuous girl of the 50s with dark lipstick and blonde hair, you get a little bit of a glimpse of the dark lipstick and blonde hair in the Smith graduation photo, add to one's sense of the jarring disparity between the life and the work. Her husband, Ted Hughes, an English poet, refers in a poem to, quote, your exaggerated American grin for the cameras, the judges, the strangers, the frighteners. And I think you see her grinning, certainly for the, for the, um, for the strangers and for the cameras in her Smith College picture. There exists a series of photographs of Plath interviewing the British novelist Elizabeth Bowen. Um, when Plath worked as a summer intern for Mademoiselle magazine in 1953, I imagine some of you have done summer internships and that you will certainly be doing them as you go through your four years of college. Uh, she did one at Mademoiselle, and she interviewed the novelist. We see in these photos not exactly the vacuous girl of the 50s, but nonetheless, she shows us part of the divided self, one side of the double-faced 50s. She wears a hat. Now, she's sitting inside, mind you, and she's doing an interview. This is 1953. She's wearing a hat. She's wearing pearls. She's wearing one white glove, which she seems to keep on as she speaks animatedly to Elizabeth Bowen. Formal, proper, buttoned up, covered up, prim, almost 19th century in the sense of a woman who's dressed to go outside, but is still inside. The other half, responsible for the taut surrealism of the late poems, is unimaginable when you look at these pictures of Plath, the co-ed. 
This other plath, the plath of the poems that you've read for tonight, is angry, raw, betrayed, fragmented, wild, spewing venom, creating images that are violent, bloody, and aggressive. Like Marilyn Monroe, Plath became an icon, not so much a visual icon like Monroe, but a symbol that accrued meaning, especially after her death. Her most important poems were published posthumously. Um, the publication of her poems, of her letters, of those innumerable biographies that are appearing still, uh, the, the journals that came out just a few years ago, um, these things give feed uh, her status as an icon. The story of her bitter marriage to the English poet Ted Hughes became to some emblematic of female victimhood and suffering and betrayal. He left her. She was alone with two small children in a freezing cold flat in London where she'd gone to live with him. These were her circumstances when she died. Hughes and his sisters and his sister only one of them, fortunately, I think. Hughes and his sister were her executors. They controlled her estate. Hughes destroyed the last two volumes of her journal, including the final entries. And you can imagine how um, fans of Plath, followers of Plath, would have been outraged by that kind of gesture. He did remain silent on the subject of his marriage to her until the publication of his book of poems, Birthday Letters, which did not appear until 1998, just before, shortly before he died. And so we've had, ever since Platt's death, um, it's now almost, uh, what, 40 years ago, um, we've had since then a kind of custody battle for her memory. And it continues, by the way. I just read an article last week by a literary critic, not just about Plath, but about the way the Plath estate has regarded critics who write about her. Above all, in the wake of her death, she became a feminist icon, as I said. Along with Anne Sexton and Adrienne Rich, she was the poet laureate of the women's movement, even though she died only as it first begun in 1963. Taken as the quintessential female genius, sorority girl turned poet, squashed by betrayal, domesticity, convention, the mad woman as oracle, the wronged, victimized, sacrificed woman. So though a story of the 50s, this really begins with the Second World War. And I might mention that if you've read the poems, you, you know that there are some rather disturbing images uh, of Nazis, of Jews um, sent to the gas chambers in her poetry. And I think it's interesting to see these as personal images, but also as images that come out of the experience of her generation. Um, and that have a particular meaning as she's writing them in the decade, these poems in the decade following uh, World War II. So it really begins with the Second World War, and it ends, if it, if it ended at all, with the women's liberation movement. Betty Friedan helps us to map out this history. And yet we need to back up even further, sorry about that, to the period of World War II and the 1930s and 40s a period, in fact, of great accomplishment and change for women. I just want to say a word about the years leading up to World War II. The interwar years, that is, the years between World War I and World War II, were a boom time in higher education in this country, and especially so for women. 
And now you'll sort of indulge me for a few minutes while I give you some statistics. In 1920, when the relative numbers of college-age people going to college was still relatively small, certainly compared to what it is today, 47.3% of them were female. So almost 50% of the people going to college in 1920 were women, which is kind of interesting since women just got the vote, you know, the year before. The absolute numbers skyrocketed in the 30s and 40s with the percentage of female PhDs peaking in 1930, that is, until the period of the women's movement in the 70s. The numbers of female PhDs declined slightly in the 40s and declined substantially in the 1950s. So the steady but dramatic increase in numbers of women entering higher education and professional schools peaked in the 30s and started to falter thereafter. And by the 1950s, a new cult of domesticity predominated. This was caused in part by the debilitating economic circumstances of the Depression, by disappointments in the slowness of structural changes in the workplace in relative wages. In other words, women could go to college and they had the vote, but they didn't have good child care, they didn't have good support um, for, their, for their family structures, and so that suffrage and education seemed to move ahead and the economic situation of women and their, their uh, roles in the family didn't keep pace with those things. In part, it was caused by women's, quote, return to the home in the aftermath of World War II. This is where Rosie the Riveter comes in. During the war, as many of you probably know from your American history courses, uh, women had gone to work in factories in businesses they took the places of men who had gone to war. They helped the war effort at home in jobs in civilian defense and the like. It was patriotic. It was American. It was necessary for women not only to go to work, but in effect to take men's places. And I think one of the interesting things about the Rosie the Riveter image is that she is actually quite feminine in some ways. She's clearly a woman. She's got her hair up in curls. She's got her red lipstick on. So she's a woman who's in men's clothing, and that seems to be the ideal. But after the men came home, it was precisely the opposite. Some women wanted to return to the home. They didn't want to work in factories, and others were forced to return home. It was now, after the war, patriotic, American, necessary for women to stay home if they could, if they could afford to and for men to resume control of the workplace. And home reached a kind of new divinity, a new apotheosis. Not since the time of the Victorian period, I would say, had a particular ideal of home become so crucial to the definition of a national culture. And that's really the point I'm trying to make. And I think this um, has lots of implications for the family. Uh, in general, but the idea of home was very much connected to the national ideal, to the ideal of American culture. It wasn't simply an ideal that had to do with the way families lived. It had to do with the way the culture as a whole, the society as a whole, imagined itself. What was the ideal? Well, how many of you watch Nickelodeon? How, much of you, how many of you watch those, those 50s sitcoms, um, like Leave it to Beaver? You do. Okay. Father Knows Best, I don't know if that one's on, but there, there are a whole series of 1950s sitcoms. <laughs> I grew up on them, which could explain a lot about me, but in any case, 
Um, you now have the privilege of seeing them in, in reruns on the Nickelodeon channel. Anyway, what do we see in these sitcoms? We see a suburban home, virtually never an urban one, a mother in the kitchen with her apron, which she takes off when the dad comes home from work. Um, I did see Leave it to Beaver the other night, and I noticed that Mrs. Cleaver was actually wearing pearls in the kitchen, sort of like Sylvia Plath interviewing Elizabeth Bowen. A dad who comes home after a day's work to adjudicate and dispense wisdom. And one interesting thing is that you never know where the dad has really been. You don't know how, you don't know how he got home, um, but you know that what he does during the day is very much elsewhere and out of the house. There are usually two children and sometimes three in these sitcoms. And in reality, this reflected, at least superficially, 60% of American families in 1950. A working father, a non-working mother, and two children. In recent years, this configuration represents not 60% of the country, but under 10%. A big difference. In the 1950s, there was a huge exodus from urban areas to the suburbs. The suburbs meant a larger home, isolation from other families, work in a separate place from where one lived, a culture of wives. And I might also add that at the same time, and those of you who are interested in urban history, um, can think about the racial configuration of the cities in the 1950s and what's beginning to happen with the great migration of American blacks from the South into the cities and what has been known as, what was known as, um, in my childhood, white flight. White families leaving the cities to go to the suburbs. There was a boom, as you know, in the childbirth rates, a baby boom. There was post-war patriotism and prosperity that expressed itself in the glorification of the domestic and the technological and in a marriage between the two, holy or unholy marriage, depending on your point of view. There were more machines to do housework. I really wanted to find great ads of, for vacuum cleaners, but I, I wasn't successful. Um, but that kind of thing, uh, vacuum cleaners, washing machines, dishwashers, more gadgets in the kitchen, all leading to higher expectations of a wife's proficiency at housework. Uh, you may remember also from your history courses, the kitchen debates between Khrushchev and Nixon uh, in, I think it's 1959, at the World's Fair. Um, Nixon, the head of the United States, Khrushchev, the head of the Soviet Union, debating the virtues of their separate cultures and doing it on the grounds of a kitchen, a kitchen which symbolized for Nixon in his comments um, the greatness of American culture. And as Betty Friedan tells us, kitchens were once again in the center of women's lives. And this is what else she says. In the 15 years after World War II, this mystique of feminine fulfillment became the cherished and self-perpetuating core of contemporary American culture. Millions of women lived their lives in the image of those pretty pictures of the American suburban housewife kissing their husbands goodbye in front of the picture window, depositing their station wagons full of children at school, and smiling as they ran the new electric waxer over the spotless kitchen floor. 
They baked their own bread, sewed their own in their children's clothes, kept their new washing machines and dryers running all day. They changed the sheets on the beds twice a week instead of once. I have to confess I don't remember this, nor have I heard of it. They changed the sheets on the beds twice a week instead of once, took the rug-hooking class in adult education, and pitied their poor, frustrated mothers who had dreamed of having a career. Their only dream was to be perfect wives and mothers, their highest ambition to have five children and a beautiful house, their only fight to get and keep their husbands. They had no thought for the unfeminine problems of the world outside the home. They wanted the men to make the major decisions. They gloried in their roles as women and wrote proudly on the census blank, occupation, housewife. Now, of course, this is both an ideal and an exaggeration. But it does reflect what Friedan and other women obviously felt were the pressures to conform to certain images of womanhood. Conformity in gender roles, in sexuality, in politics was the order of the day. Difference, rebelliousness, nonconformity were not tolerated. Now, of course, there were aspects of the culture in which rebellion was expressed. The cult of James Dean uh, was one example. The Beat Poets, another example. But for the most part, um, there was a sense of a, of a society that very much valued conformity. And the most virulent form and the most um, really damaging form of this was, of course, McCarthyism. But anti-communism had its social and sexual analogs in homophobia, in racism, in rigidly defined sex roles, in psychological theories of what was called the masculinity complex to refer to women who were too ambitious, a kind of um, exploration by psychologists of inner space, the idea that a woman's anatomy uh, somehow uh, gave rise to her, to her character, to her psychological makeup. A uh, psychologist named Eric Erickson wrote about inner space and its meaning for women. And a growing ideological disposition to hold women, to hold mothers responsible for whatever aberrant behavior their children exhibited. Friedan emphasizes the degree to which many of these 50s women, including herself, had an ambition and career plans, and yet gave them up when the pull of marriage and motherhood couldn't be reconciled with work or graduate school. Women were faced with mutually exclusive alternatives, no hope or vision of synthesis. There was th that phrase, having it all, I don't know if that's a phrase that's still current, but it was certainly current in the 1970s and on into the 80s. That, that notion of having it all um, said whether uh, positively or pejoratively was not something uh, that applied to the decade of the 50s. The choices women made seemed to be, whether they really were or not, they seemed to be absolute. And Friedan also describes what she regards as a kind of brainwashing. If women of the 1950s, women who lived in the suburbs, had comfort, if they had relative prosperity, which most of them did, if they had lovely homes and yards, husbands with steady jobs, what cause did they have for complaint? What could possibly cause their unhappiness? If they felt discontent, what was its source? She describes a kind of somnambulance, a kind of sleepwalking or catatonia, in which women would drift through their days suppressing, 
uh, vague, inchoate, and unexplained frustration or depression. There's a good movie I would recommend. Well, a movie, an interesting movie I would recommend from the 1970s called The Stepford Wives, in which you see um, that the suburban housewife has actually been turned into a robot, uh, uh, a kind of catatonic figure, uh, computerized, I guess, um, by, by the husbands of a particular community. And this is the image that, uh, of these sort of sleepwalking, robot-like women that Friedan evokes. Men, Friedan tells us, were encouraged to have and allowed to have what Eric Erickson, the psychologist I just mentioned, called an identity crisis or identity crises, but not women. And yet, Friedan tells us, women were beginning to have them. They were beginning to break down, to question their prescribed destinies, to admit unhappiness and frustration, to search and wander from the straight and narrow path. She uses metaphors to suggest a kind of awakening, a coming out of coma or stupor or a bad dream. And she envisions a model of development that would take women from what has been called femininity, she writes, to full humanity. Friedan sees masculinity as a state that requires, but also has the luxury of crisis, of indecision, of breakdown, of recovery. And femininity, on the other hand, is a state whose crises have been denied it. Women aren't supposed to have crises. She looks to a female identity crisis as a means of rerouting female development from a kind of forced or bogus femininity to a more general humanity or universal humanity from difference from men, a progression from difference from men to sameness. And I think we could see the women's liberation movement of the 70s as a kind of generational identity crisis that American women or some American women lived through. In a 1952 journal entry, Sylvia Plath, then age 19, registers her sense of ambition, fierce ambition, as well as an awareness of the kind of marriage the culture generally prescribed and Friedan describes. And she wrote in her journal, she drew in her journal, a very small circle, and around that small circle, a larger circle. And the small circle was directly in the center of the larger one. And this is what she wrote next to it. A circle signifying me and my operations confined solely to home other women folk, and community service. She's imagining what marriage would be like for her, given the customs of the day. Enclosed, she continues, in the larger worldly circle of my mate, who brings home from his periphery of contact with the world the tales only of vicarious experience to me. And there's a, there's a real sort of hint of, of sadness and melancholy here. Um, but a, also a sense that this is the way reality is. What she wants instead is another picture that she draws of two interlocking circles, so that, so that there's two separate areas, but there's also a kind of area in the middle that's, um, that's shared by both circles. She also speculates that there might be moments of intense um, fusion between husband and wife in which the two circles might even be merged completely, completely overlap. She knows, however, this is both impossible and undesirable. She notes, too, that the young men she knows counsel her 
against the idea that she can have both her art and marriage. They buy into this ideology of mutually exclusive choices, and they warn her of the dangers of an intense sameness of purpose between herself and her husband. And of course, given that she ended up marrying a poet like herself, this notion of whether you would have this kind of intense sameness experience of experience or separateness of experience was a very loaded issue for her. On the surface of things, Plath strove to be the good girl, winner of scholarships, summer internships, awards, the prim co-ed of the Mademoiselle interviews and internship, then the perfect white wife and mate of a commanding and successful male poet, then the single mother, once her husband left her, who would bear the burden of raising her children alone. But her poems give us and if you've read them, you, you, I think, can see this fairly readily. They give us this other Medusa-like self, the self that perhaps Friedan would tell us has been awakened. Voracious, monstrous, turning men to stone or devouring them. I eat men like air, the speaker of Lady Lazarus declares, accusing her father of being Nazi-like, vampire-like, mocking marriage bitterly. In the poem, The Applicant, we have marriage as a business transaction or as an application for a job. The prospective bridegroom is interrogated, are you our sort of person, they ask him, and offered a bride who can, quote, bring teacups and roll away headaches, thumb shut your eyes at the end, be a living doll, or an automaton, or a dummy. It can sew, it can cook, it can talk, talk, talk. That repetition of the talk, 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 giving a sense of the robot-like uh, movements, the robot-like gestures of the wife who repeats the same things over and over again, who goes through the motions, who is like the Stepford Wives, a kind of robot figure. In this poem, Plath emphasizes the artificiality of marriage, Marriage as an exchange of services, the wife um, bringing teacups, uh, soothing headaches, closing her husband's eyes upon his death, and woman as a kind of wind-up doll. In Lady Lazarus, which is dated October 1962, but published uh, after Plath's death, she makes herself into a sideshow freak. The speaker of the poem, I should say, makes herself into a sideshow freak to meditate on her penchant for suicide, her proficiency at dying. But as her title suggests, and I want to look at the poem with you um, for the last part of my lecture, as her title suggests, her identification with Lazarus suggests rebirth as well as her sideshow circus feet. Her sideshow circus feet is not merely self-annihilation, but a kind of resurrection, a kind of power, as well as suffering and victimhood. If you have your booklets, I would like it if you, if you took them out. Um, if you don't have them, I'm going to read the poem. I think it's the last.
You have no idea how noisy this room has just become. It's on the second to last page of the, uh, of the booklet. It's page 244 in the text that, uh, that I Xeroxed from. So for the rest of my time, I'm going to read the poem, and I'm going to talk a little bit um, about how one might analyze the poem. Uh, and you're encouraged to discuss it uh, in your groups or to go on to other poems that that you've read and found interesting. If we begin with the title, there are kind of a few interesting things we get from from it. Um, Lady Lazarus, the lady suggesting a kind of primness, uh, a kind of gentility, but also suggesting the freak show lady, the fat lady in the circus, the bearded lady, the two-headed lady. So this is both a lady who's very proper and very genteel um, and a freak. And, of course, Lazarus refers, as you know, to the character in the New Testament who rises from the dead, who was miraculously reborn through the the ministries of of Christ. Um, And I would just add one more thing about the title, and that is that she's joining uh, Lazarus, who is this important sort of biblical figure, who is a kind of prefiguration of Christ, because Christ, after all, was also reborn and resurrected. She's taking this figure and making it female. I have done it again. One year in every ten, I manage it. A sort of walking miracle, my skin bright as a Nazi lampshade, my right foot a paperweight, my face a featureless, fine Jew linen. Peel off the napkin, oh, my enemy, do I terrify? She starts out beginning by beginning to refer to a kind of cycle once every 10 years. This is something she's done before. It's something she continues to do on a regular basis. It's an act that she repeats. It's not a one-time only uh, gesture. She manages it. It's something that she's able to, to sort of bring off. It's a feat. It's an act. She is a, a miracle. Um, and it's in all of these references to uh, the death camps, really. They're really grisly death camp images. Uh, the, the identification um, here with the, persecu- the persecuted Jew suggests um, that her, her skin uh, has a kind of thinness and transparency to it, like a lampshade, if you can think of light shining through a, a lampshade. Linen, a very thin material. There's this kind of, there's this uh, napkin, which is like her skin, that she can peel off and she can put on. And one thing you might want to think about is the appropriateness of this imagery, imagery that is incredibly shocking and disturbing and refers to uh, the murder and the victimization of the victims of the Nazis, and think about whether you think the image actually works uh, for Plath in terms of what Plath is saying about women. The nose, the eye pits, the full set of teeth. Like she's like a skeleton underneath this thin layer of skin, this thin parchment. The sour breath will vanish in a day. Soon, soon the flesh the grave cave eight will be at home on me, and I, a smiling woman, I'm only 30, and like the cat, 
I have nine times to die. She refers to um, herself as a skeleton, which was going to be covered, uh, and she will again become a smiling woman, no longer a skeleton without eyes, no longer a skeleton uh, with only teeth and bones. She'll become a smiling woman again, a convincing, a convincing act of womanhood, uh, a convincing act of a 30-year-old woman, as if she's putting on a suit of her own flesh, putting her flesh back on and coming alive again. I think the grave cave uh, is, in fact, a reference to to Christ, um, to the resurrection of Christ, Christ having been buried, walled up right in a cave before he, before he was reborn. So she's claiming for herself a rather uh, extraordinary power. She's claiming for herself the power of resurrection and the power, in some, in some ways, um, of divinity. This is number three. She's got nine times to do it, like a cat. And this is number three. What a trash to annihilate each decade. What a million filaments, filaments, the idea of something exposed, something that's kind of naked and exposed, like the filaments in a, in a, in a light bulb, uncovered, um, in the way that she, she, her, her skeleton is exposed um, in, in the image of death. And then she moves, in, moves from this rather horrifying Nazi imagery and the imagery of, of, of Christ and resurrection to this carnival imagery. The peanut-crunching crowd shoves in to see. She's a spectacle. They unwrap me hand and foot, perhaps like a dead body, perhaps like a mummy, but uh, a dead body that's sexualized because it's the big striptease a reminder here of her sex, of her gender. Gentlemen, ladies, these are my hands, my knees, I may be skin and bone. Nevertheless, I am the same identical woman. The first time it happened, I was 10. It was an accident. The second time, I meant to last it out and not come back at all. I rocked shut as a seashell. They had to call and call and pick the worms off me like sticky pearls. And just point out a few things here. Um, it's, she's, she's sort of like a hawker at a carnival. She says, you know, step right up, step right up. Ladies and gentlemen, come and see. These are my hands. These are my knees. What's, what's amazing about her? What's amazing about her is that she is the same identical woman. She keeps coming back. The, the, real, the real miracle here is not that she tries to kill herself, is not that she becomes this death-like figure, but that she comes back and she's exactly the same as she was before. And it has a kind of eeriness to it that this multiple suicide, this woman who has attempted multiple suicides, comes back exactly as she was before. But it's also a kind of feat, a kind of miracle. She rocks shut like a seashell, something that won't open, um, that won't, won't express itself, and that one can't have access to. And she's put, pulled out as if from the bottom of the sea with things sticking to her, worms. Dying is an art like everything else. I do it exceptionally well. I do it so it feels like hell. I do it so it feels real. I guess you could say I have a call. These lines, which express a kind of um, uh, almost uh, derisive tone, uh, kind of caustic and bitter tone, 
are, are very, very simple. Uh, there's a kind of repetition here. I do it so it feels like hell. I do it so it feels real. Um, this is, there's a kind of bravado, uh, it seems to me, in, in these lines. This is my vocation. I have a calling. I have a kind of proficiency, a talent, a gift for doing this. Again, the sense that this is a performance. And perhaps there's a link between uh, her being a woman, that is, a sideshow lady, like the bearded lady, like the fat lady in the circus, a lady who does a striptease, and that sense of being on display and of performing and pleasing her audience, uh, certainly entertaining and amazing her audience. It's easy enough to do it in a cell. It's easy enough to do it and stay put. That is, you can do it by yourself. You can do it hidden away from people. That's easy. What's difficult is the theatrical comeback, doing it for the public, doing it as a display. The theatrical comeback in broad day to the same place, the same face, the same brute, amused, shout, a miracle. That knocks me out. The idea that she keeps doing it, she comes back to the same place, she's the same woman, it's like, it's like what the fat lady does in the circus. She keeps coming back and performing. That repetition, that ability to act it out over and over again. There is a charge for the eyeing of my scars. Don't think you can see them for free. There is a charge for the hearing of my heart. It really goes. And there is a charge, a very large charge, for a word or touch or a bit of blood or a piece of my hair or my clothes. And now she shifts again into those uh, allusions to the Nazis and to the Germans. So, so, Herr Doctor, so, Herr Enemy, I am your opus. I am your valuable, the pure gold baby that melts to a shriek. I turn and burn. Do not think. I underestimate your great concern. She now addresses some man. Is he a specific man? Um, is he... Uh, a kind of general image of manhood? Is she saying that there's this kind of Nazi-like figure who represents every man? In that allusion to the melting of the gold, she uh, refers to the, the Nazi practice of melting gold, melting gold fillings from the mouths of their, of their victims. Ash, ash, you poke and stir. Flesh, bone, there is nothing there. A cake of soap, a wedding ring, a gold filling, again that, that sense of dismemberment and dissolution, but also those things that are left after you've been destroyed, after you've been gassed in the gas chambers, what's left? Hair God, Hair Lucifer, beware, beware. Her God, Her Lucifer, this kind of blasphemous um, juxtaposition of God and Satan. Who is this God? Who is this Satan? Is this, again, a universal uh, image of manhood? Is it a Nazi? Is it a German? It's some kind of tyrant. It's some enemy. Beware, beware why? Beware because you think I'm dead. You think I'm gone. You think I'm destroyed. You think I've just turned to ash, to bone, and to skeleton. But out of the ash, I rise with my red hair, and I eat men like air. She's ash, but she's like the phoenix who rises out of ash. She's like Lazarus who comes 
alive again, perhaps like Christ, who's resurrected. But she's also, as well as this brilliant, uh, resurrected, phoenix-like figure, a monstrous and devouring woman who eats men like air. And the, the red hair here, um, I, I, I said at the very beginning that Rosie the Riveter has red hair. Um, you'll see that there are red images throughout the, the poems of Plath, but that, that idea of the woman with red hair, uh, the woman who stands out, the woman who can't sort of blend in with her circumstances and her surroundings, the woman with hair that's on fire, uh, that consumes in the way that, in the way that she consumes man like air. So what I really want to say about the poem, in, in very brief conclusion, because we're really out of time, that by the end, this uh, self-destructing, uh, suicidal, bitter woman, this freak, this sideshow lady, triumphs. She takes her revenge. Her revenge is that she keeps coming back. Her triumph is the show, the carnival, the exhibition, the art that she creates, the poetry that she creates, her act, her display, her performance, are her ability to annihilate herself when she chooses to come back as herself again and again and to create art out of this experience of self-immolation and rebirth. And that's it. Thank you. Thank you. You were you were a very good audience, um, attentive and patient. And I will be happy to take a couple of questions before you leave and go on to your small discussions. And if you have something that I can answer, I will I will try to answer it.
did I think the Donna Reed show, which I guess is also on Nickelodeon, you know, fit this, this particular model? And, and yes, it does. The example that, <laughs> that was, no, no, that wasn't all. The, the, the example that was given was of an episode in which the mother, who has a daughter and a son and is married to a high-powered doctor, really has to split herself into three and be in three different places. She has to accompany her husband when he's giving a, a paper. She has to go to her son's basketball game. She has to go to a mother and daughter function with her daughter, and she doesn't think she can handle it, and she breaks down. But then in the end, um, she manages to do it. And I think what, what's... Um, interesting about that, of course, is that it does show her breaking down, but then, then it shows her being superwoman, um, but superwoman for everyone else in her family, not, not the superwoman image that we tend to associate with a woman who works and also raises a family, but the super, the supermother who can, who can be in three places at one time and, and really has to in order to fulfill the desires of, of her family. Is there another question or comment? Yeah. Uh, it's an interesting question. The question is, how has feminism evolved, particularly in its attitude towards the housewife? Because this student, um, I heard Gloria Steinem speak about housewives and the fact that they should be supported, that they should be given government support, stipends, that kind of thing, because they're so important. I think that this is a historical shift. That is, that, that Betty Friedan is writing out of her experience of being a sort of frustrated housewife of being um, a woman who feels herself oppressed. And she's not against housewives. She's against a kind of enforced role that she, she chafes at, that she rebels against, but feels that she has no scope to rebel against. I think what Steinem might say is, yes, that's true. There are women who don't want to be housewives, and if they don't want to be housewives, they shouldn't. They should be supported in what they want to do. But if there are women who, for a variety of reasons having to do with their circumstances and their desires, need to be or want to be housewives, they should be given a certain kind of, of, of economic um, support. And I think it's hard to generalize about where feminism has, has come since the 1970s, but I do think that there's a little bit more flexibility about imagining um, different women's roles as having a kind of integrity, which I think Betty Friedan, who was writing out of a kind of anger, not totally unlike Sylvia Plath, didn't, didn't really feel. She didn't feel that kind of flexibility and tolerance. was whether there are cycles, and, and I, you know, the 20s being a, a period of, of, uh, 
of success for women, the 60s being a period, uh, 60s and 70s being a period of, of rebellion um, and achievement, the 80s being the decade of what, the working woman, is that, is that what you said? Yeah, and women, a sense of women's power, and now maybe the, the 90s and after the 90s going, women wanting to be housewives. I don't know if women want to be housewives. I would say that the statistics of, there are more women working outside the home than ever before. So it's really, um, I think, an illusion that there are lots of women who are still in the home and still uh, still there because they can afford to be there and because they want to be there. I don't know the percentage, but it's certainly well over 60% of women um, work outside the home. And even the percentage of women with small children who work outside the home uh, is very high. So on the other hand, I think your question, which you might want to talk about with your friends or in these groups, um, is really about whether there, is, where, whether there are reactions against feminism when it becomes uh, a kind of popular movement and has certain su successes, and whether there are reactions against it, what has been called the backlash uh, against feminism. And there are certain theorists and certain social commentators who feel, yes, that there is a backlash and that we may be living through one. But I'll let you, I'll let you sort that one out. Do, should we take one more? All right, one more. There's some. I should have to take someone in the back. It seems exciting. The question was about Phyllis Schlafly. I don't know what's funny, but anyway, I guess walking back. The, the question is about Phyllis Schlafly. I don't know. If, is, that, is that a name that's familiar to you? <laughs> Phyllis Schlafly is a kind of anti-Betty Friedan. I mean, she's a very conservative, uh, very smart, and outspoken social critic. Um, who argued that feminism was really not doing women any favors. She was against the Equal Rights Amendment, something that you probably, uh, something that's long forgotten um, in your generation. Uh, the Equal Rights Amendment was an effort to actually pass an amendment to the Constitution that would uh, establish uh, equal rights for men and women. It never passed. Um, as an amendment, and she, she campaigned uh, vehemently against it. What I would say about Phyllis Schlafly, and this may not be a full answer to your question, is that she, she's one of those ironic women who has had a very active career, um, has published a great deal, is a public figure, and has been a great success as a public figure, and yet speaks um, against those forces in, in society that enable her to do it. I mean, that's my take on Schlafly. On the other hand, um, women, like men, 
who work, who are successful, who have careers, are going to have a variety of political views. And so hers is, hers is, is different um, from Betty Friedan and, and, and other feminists of that generation. But I do think there's a kind of irony um, in, her, in her particular uh, instance. So. Um, whoops. I'm sorry to cut that off, but I know that you all have to go back to the residential colleges, and I think you'll probably have a lot of things to discuss. So I just want to thank Professor Nord again, and hope you enjoy your championship.